May you have a happy, prosperous new year. That's a, a familiar phrase right about now, isn't it? Something to that effect, happy new year. May you have a happy, prosperous new year, a, a peaceful uh, new year. And truly, people are yearning for happiness. They are yearning for peace and prosperity. And really, there is nothing wrong with uh, desiring prosperity. It's not wrong for, for Christians to prosper. Remember 3 John, verse 2, John writing to Gaius, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. But what we do need to realize from that passage is that while prosperity is uh, certainly not intrinsically uh, sinful to be prosperous, we need to make sure that our soul is prospering uh, in proportion uh, to whatever physical prosperity we're enjoying. In fact, our priority must be that our souls are prospering. But physical prosperity is certainly not something that is beyond the reach or realm of, of Christians. But we must be cautious. Remember what the writer of Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9, requested of God? He wrote, Two things I request of you, deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. And then he said, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, the, the desire of the writer of that passage was to keep things in, in perspective and to make sure that he had his priorities in order, and that perhaps it wouldn't be good to have too much prosperity because of the temptation to forget God. On the other hand, too little would cause one to, uh, uh, to uh, deny God or, and uh, profane the name of a God and steal. We need to be content with such things as we have, as Paul on one occasion admonished. But you know, when it comes to happiness and prosperity, the world generally does not evaluate prosperity and happiness properly. Solomon, you remember, learned the hard way that happiness is, is not found in, in sensual pleasure. If you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and you read those 11 verses there, the first 11 verses, you see very uh, clearly that he tried it all. Uh, he experienced uh, everything and yet all was Vanity, as he put it, and, and a striving after wind. And so Solomon, the wisest man, human being, who ever lived, pure human being, wise beyond uh, his time because God granted him that wisdom, abused it for much of his life and sought that happiness with what? Mirth. Come now, I will test you with mirth, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. Therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. And then on and on and on he goes. Down at verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. Well, verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold from my heart or my heart from any pleasure. But look at verse 11. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, 
and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Well, what was Solomon's ultimate conclusion? Remember, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, he said this, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. And then he added, For God will bring every work to judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. But as we said, Faithfulness to God and material prosperity are not mutually exclusive. That's not what Solomon is saying. But we must recognize, and this was Solomon's problem initially, we must recognize God as the source of material blessings, and we must use those blessings in accordance with his will and to his glory. Listen to Deuteronomy 8, verse 18. The passage says, And you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. It is he who gives you power to get wealth. Don't ever forget that and attribute that prosperity to whatever degree you have it to the God of heaven and use what you have to his glory. In our lesson today, I want us to look at, at an ancient recipe, if you will, an ancient prescription for peace and prosperity. As we are closing out a, another year and getting ready to begin a new year, think with me for a few moments about a prescription, an ancient prescription for peace and prosperity, and it comes from the psalmist. It is the psalmist's prescription for peace and prosperity. Turn to Psalm 122. There are nine verses in this psalm attributed uh, to David here. Let's read those, verse, those nine verses that comprise this psalm and see how these verses provide for us that ancient prescription, the psalmist's prescription for peace and prosperity. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. Prosperity Within your palaces, for the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, Peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now notice verse 7 in particular. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. There's the key verse containing the key words, peace and prosperity. However, the recipe for producing that peace and, and that prosperity, that recipe or that prescription, if you will, begins in verse 1. Go back to verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your 
palaces. I was glad. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Uh, that's verse 1. I added uh, verse 7 there to it. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Now, what we need to appreciate from this Old Testament statement by the psalmist is that the house of the Lord was the temple, obviously the tabernacle initially, and then the place where God dwelt among his people. There was then the temple. The house of the Lord today, however, is not a physical building. This church building is not the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord today is the church. And as we look at the, pre, the psalmist's prescription for peace and prosperity, the first ingredient, if you will, in the recipe, the first part of the prescription is an eagerness for worship. And that's what verse 1 of Psalm 122 expresses. I was what? I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I was glad. The attitude toward worship. The eagerness for worship. 1 Timothy 3.15, remember what Paul wrote to Timothy there, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. There's the house of God today. It is not a physical building, it is a spiritual building. It is the church. How do we feel about worship in the church? It is an essential part of the recipe, if you will, the prescription for prosperity, spiritually speaking, is an attitude toward worship that says, I am glad, I anticipate, I look forward to every opportunity to being with my brothers and my sisters in Christ. Is that your attitude this morning? Will that be your attitude tonight? Will that be your attitude Wednesday night? Will that be your attitude next Sunday morning uh, at Bible study time? What is our attitude toward the opportunities that we have to come together, to study from God's Word collectively, to encourage one another, Hebrews 10.24, to consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, as the writer there tells us, not forsaking, he adds, verse 25, the assembling of ourselves together as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, no one can prosper spiritually who leaves worship to God out of his life. But of course, worship must be according to God's will. And God's will regarding worship can be summarized in John 4, 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit. That gets back to the psalmist statement. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Worshiping God in spirit equates to being glad to be together to worship God. It involves wholehearted worship, our attitude in worship, but our attitude toward worship and toward the assemblies. As we begin a new year very shortly, what will be our attitude toward those assemblies? I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. How many times? How many times have you heard from this pulpit the importance of being together in every assembly of the Lord's people? In other words, you've had it said to you, <laughs> let us go into the house of the Lord. That is, let us come together to worship. Let us come together to study. 
What is your attitude toward that admonition? What is your attitude toward the admonition of the psalmist? Toward the attitude, toward the admonition of the writers of the New Testament? And toward the example that was set by the early church as they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and the breaking of bread and prayers. Daily with one accord in the temple. What is our attitude? What will be our attitude concerning worship to God? Will we have that eagerness for worship in the year ahead? We need to. We need to. We must make sure that we do. Now notice verse 2. In Psalm 122, verse 2, Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Eagerness for worship, that's the first part of the prescription. Now this verse reveals another ingredient in the recipe, if you will, for peace and prosperity. And here it is. We must take a stand for God. We've got to take a stand for God. Standing with him, standing for him. It's not sufficient to lean toward God. That can't be the attitude that, well, I'm leaning toward God. No, Matthew 12, 30. Remember, it's a passage we have often quoted. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. The Lord made it clear that leaning in his direction is not sufficient, didn't he? That text makes that abundantly clear. That leaning in his direction, leaning toward God is not sufficient. We must take our stand for God. And do you not agree that we live in a time where taking that stand is so crucial in terms of everything we're facing, in terms of the challenges of our time, challenges that that maybe the previous generation did not face. They faced their challenges, but we face some unique challenges, some serious challenges, the atheistic challenges, the agnostic challenges, those from the infidels, those from uh, the liberals among us. We face challenges, and it is vitally important that we take a stand for God. We must be inside the gates of Jerusalem if you will. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. There the writer says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Those passages reveal something. Go back. The heavenly Jerusalem. That's where we have come. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what the writer is reminding these Hebrew Christians about. You're not a part of that old law anymore. You've now come to the heavenly Jerusalem. In other words, what he's pointing out is that Jerusalem, as we see from this passage, is used figuratively at times for the church. The heavenly Jerusalem. And we must be a part of the heavenly Jerusalem being where? Inside the gates. Inside the gates. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Our stand for God is in the church. You can't stand for God outside the body of Christ. You can't stand for God and deny the essentiality of the church. You can't stand for God 
and belittle the church for which Christ shed his blood. Our stand has to be a stand for God that is taken from within the gates, the gates of Jerusalem, the spiritual Jerusalem, which is, of course, the church of our Lord, as Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 demonstrates the usage of that term. But now look at verse 3. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact, notice, together. Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, as we are applying it, of course, here, the church is built as a city that is what? Compact together. What does that tell us? That tells us that unity is necessary for peace and prosperity. Unity. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, Paul writes, In whom the whole building being what? Fitted together. Compare that to compact together from the words of the psalmist. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. Paul writes concerning the church in whom the whole building being fitted together. Unity, beautiful unity, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being, here it is again, built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Unity, oh how precious it is. How precious it is, how important it is, but it obviously must be achieved on God's terms and not on man's terms. It cannot be a unity and diversity approach. It cannot be an agree to disagree approach. It must be unity on God's terms and not man's. And John 17, 20 and 21 is another passage that tells us what those terms are. It is a passage that provides a pattern for unity. Remember the Lord's Prayer there in that portion of the prayer where he turned his attention to believers, having prayed specifically for himself in the early part of the prayer and then for his apostles. Then he turns to believers for all time to come and prays, I do not pray for these alone, that is his apostles now, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word, listen to it, that they all may be one, but listen to this, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. There's the pattern for unity summarized so beautifully in the poignant prayer of Jesus just prior to his betrayal and crucifixion. I pray that all believers for all time will be one, but here's the basis of that unity for which I'm praying, Father. He said, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Just as we are one, I pray that they will be one. How are God and Christ one? They're one in nature. They're one in doctrine. The Lord Jesus never taught anything on earth that was not authorized by God the Father. He said so. Therefore, to be unified as the heavenly Jerusalem, the spiritual building, compact together, to have the unity that is necessary for peace and prosperity, it must be a unity that is based upon this standard, the Word of God, nothing more and nothing less. Now notice verse 4. Where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. What does this tell us? from the psalmist about the prescription for peace and prosperity or the ancient recipe it says that peace and prosperity are linked to gratitude. 
As we close out a year and begin a new one very shortly, what about our, our gratitude? How grateful are we? And how grateful will we continue to be? Gratitude is so crucial, so important to God, and ingratitude is nothing new. And God took note of it on every occasion when it occurred among His people, didn't He? Remember the, the words of God through the prophet Isaiah? In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not consider. What a sad, sad statement that is from God through the prophet. The ox knows its owner. The animals understand that. The donkey knows its master's crib, but what about my people? Israel does not know, they do not consider. And then in that same book of Isaiah, over at chapter 5, where there is a parable concerning God's vineyard of old, Israel and Judah, in the key verse in that parable, verse 4 of chapter 5, God asks a rhetorical question. He asks it this way, What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? What more could I have done for my people that I haven't done for them? And then he asked, why then when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? I did everything that should have been done and could have been done to produce within my people hearts filled with gratitude that would lead them to obey me, and yet I got rebellion instead. Wild grapes. The wild grapes of rebellion instead of the good grapes of obedience. Is God concerned about our gratitude level? Absolutely. And these statements about His people of old make that abundantly clear. Oh yes, there has been adversity in this past year and there are many of you sitting here this morning who've undergone extreme adversity. Adversity that perhaps some have not undergone in various ways. But God is still God. God still loves you and God still wants you to love Him and to express that love and gratitude in continued obedience with faith and trust in Him. And understanding that even through that adversity we can become stronger and that we do, if we're faithful children of God, have a hope that those who are not in spiritual Jerusalem, that they do not have. Peace and prosperity are linked to gratitude. Counting our blessings as we often sing that old hymn. Name them one by one. A very good idea and a very worthwhile practice. Now look at verse 5. Another part of the prescription for peace and prosperity, the ancient recipe, if you will, the, for thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. What does this tell us? There must be respect for a standard of authority. There are thrones that are what? Set. The thrones of judgment are set. They are firm. And we must recognize the true standard of authority in our lives. And we realize that in the world in which we live as we close out this year and as we approach another 
We live in a time perhaps as at no other time in our lives when that respect has eroded to a degree that we have not experienced. The tried and true standards of decency are being disregarded and discarded by many. What about the Bible? What about the sacredness of marriage? What about the sacredness of human life? What about the church? On and on we could go. It may be the greatest problem we face in today's world in the coming year, and that is lack of respect for this book, lack of respect for the standard, for the Word of God. Despite what the Word of God claims for itself, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, despite that claim and others that could be cited from the book itself. There are those who ignore it and disregard it. We must not be among them. And what about verse 6? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. What does this remind us about? That prosperity and peace result from prayer and love. Prayer and love. What a combination. Prayer and prosperity are related, are they not? Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread. Matthew 6, verse 11. And peace results from prayer, does it not? Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Paul there wrote, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, that gets us back to gratitude, doesn't it? With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and here it is. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And love, increase and abound in love. From the Thessalonian epistles that we have studied just recently, Paul admonished love that is increasing and abounding. And in verse 7, our key verse, peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. And that's a reminder that the peace about which we're speaking, the secret to it, and to the prosperity about which we're speaking today, the secret of peace and prosperity lies within. Not in externals, but it lies within. Within. There's a key passage here, John 14, verse 27. Peace, Jesus said to his apostles, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Listen to it. Peace, my peace. My peace is not as the world gives. My peace is a peace that calms the troubled heart. Most are looking for happiness and peace in the externals. And many times people today are blaming others for their unhappiness. Abraham Lincoln once said, most people are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. Make up their minds to be. That's the key, isn't it? The mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If we have the mind of Christ, then we can have that peace. And then, verses 8 and 9. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, Peace be within you, 
because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Notice, for the sake of my brethren and companions. That reminds us that peace and prosperity require a right relationship with others. You know, no one is more miserable than the self-centered individual. And after talking about that rich man who tore down his barns to build greater barns, Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. We need to be considering how we can help others. How we can help the needy, Galatians 6, verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. What about our husbands and our wives? Ephesians 5, 28 through 33. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And do we realize that the good we do for others rebounds with joy and blessing to us? In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul reminded those Corinthians that their generosity had done just that, and that they had encouraged the majority by their generosity. And indeed, the good we do for others does rebound with joy and blessing to us. Well, as we draw to a close in our prescription for peace and prosperity from the psalmist, let us realize that peace and prosperity are possible only in Christ. Remember verse 8. I will now say, peace be within you. Let me ask you, can you now say, peace be within me? Can you now sing, it is well with my soul? In Christ you can. Outside of Christ, you cannot. And to be in Christ, one must believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, repent of his sins, confess, and then be baptized. Confess Jesus to be the Christ and be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. And then from that day forward, follow the psalmist's recipe, the principles set forth of old for continued peace and prosperity. What are they? Eagerness for worship taking a stand for God, keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, respecting the standard of authority, the Word of God, praying without ceasing and loving more deeply every day, realizing that peace and prosperity lie within, and maintaining right relationships with others. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, you cannot have the peace and prosperity about which we have been studying today. But you can, as soon as you do, obey the gospel. And you can rise from that watery grave in newness of life with a peace that surpasses understanding and a soul that is prospering beyond any prosperity materially that you could ever, ever gather to yourself. It's more important than all this world combined. That is your soul and the welfare of your soul.
If you need to come home to your first love as a wayward child of God who knows that he or she has not lived in accordance with the psalmist's recipe for peace and prosperity and that you've been lacking in some of these ingredients and you need to repent of those things publicly, we plead with you to do that. And for all who need no repentance, may you end this year and begin the new as you end this one as faithful, loving, obedient children of God. But if you need to respond, come now as we stand to sing to encourage you.